Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 51. Did you see that? Did you see that? Did you run like that coming into church? Just as an aside, and, and it's, it's, it's appropriate, uh, this is Miss Virginia Upton's birthday. So if you have not well, given her a happy birthday, make sure that when you see her, you tell her happy birthday. Okay? Psalm 51. Now, we're going to spend the next couple weeks here in Psalm 51 as we lead up to, to Easter. And uh, we'll see, we can tell from the title here, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we know it's a song of confession. We know it's a song of um, after David's sin, when he had had come to his senses. Uh, and, And this is not a psalm that he wrote when he was a young man. This is a psalm when he is mature. This is a psalm written after he had kind of been through the, his, uh, the spiritual struggles and things. And, and obviously he's in his palace. He has built that. Um, and and, and he, he looks upon Bathsheba as we'll look in, in a moment. And he, he falls into sin. Uh, and this is his confession before the Lord. Now just as an aside, how would you like to take your very worst sin... And, and write it all down in a long prayer and message and then give it to the choir director and say, hey, would you put this to a tune so we could sing it for the next 4,000 years? Maybe not. But that's what we have here. This is about David's sin and his confession and God's graciousness. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read Psalm 51. Heavenly Father, come upon us today that our hearts would be enlivened to the things of Christ, enlivened by your Holy Spirit to your word, that we would see clearly what it says, that, that our hearts might be conformed, and that we might understand the importance of confession, that we might understand your graciousness and your mercy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're just going to do, deal with verses 1 and 2 today, so I'll, I'll just read through verse 9 so we have an understanding of, of that particular context. Psalm 51, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only I have sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. As I said, this is a psalm of David when he's, he's mature. And he knows the Lord pretty well at this time. And we understand that he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who hated sin. 
He hated iniquity. He hated unrighteousness. He hated it in others, but we see he hated it in himself as well. And so he's going to the one who he, in whom he can find forgiveness. And we understand he knows who he has sinned against. And that's why he goes to the Lord first. And as we prepare our hearts to come share the Lord's table today, draw our attention to the words of Psalm 51. It is a theme of true confession, of true confession. Paul says in Corinthians, he says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So it's important before we come to the Lord's table that we have confessed, we have examined our own hearts, and and we are aware of the sinfulness within us and aware of the forgiveness there, because before we can actually celebrate the cross, we have to understand our own sinfulness. There needs to be a time of of searching our own hearts. Uh, I mean, how how could we celebrate the forgiveness, the complete forgiveness of Christ if you're, we're sitting here in church with some secret sins, at least secret to those around us, but we know them and the Lord knows them, that we aren't willing to confess to the Lord, that we aren't willing to say, Lord, yes, this is the sinfulness of my heart. That would be hypocrisy. So we must examine ourselves. So along those lines, I have to say that we are probably one of the more strange groups within society. And, and we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit. Because we might be the only organization where members meet regularly to describe themselves as miserable sinners, okay? Uh, of which I am the chief. Now, uh, how many of you say you are the chiefs of sinners? Good, good. That's, uh, that's right, okay? It's not just Paul. It's not just Bunyan. But it's each of us is the chief of sinners because each of us need the forgiveness that comes from Christ, now, we're not a society of perfect people. Remember, if you ever remember that bumper sticker, I haven't seen it in a while, but it says what? Not perfect, just forgiven. Okay? Oh, I don't want to go to the church. Church is full of hypocrites. Well, what? It's not full. There's room for one more. Come on. There's plenty of room. Now, see, I, I, I know how many times I've, I've said that, but it's true. We are not perfect. My goodness, if we were perfect, we'd be dead. Okay? <laughs> and even though we're Presbyterians... And sometimes we have been accused of being that, dead. (laughs) I don't know what they mean by that. Praise God. (laughs) We're not. Okay, we are not dead. The church is a hospital, and we understand that. Sick people are here, but we know where the cure is. That's why we gather here. That's why we come to a place like this, so that we can... Know the words of Christ. I mean, it's it's at least we recognize we're sick, and and you know it's why are we obsessed with sin? Obsessed with sin. I want to say we're obsessed with it, but we deal with it more than the rest of the world does. Why? Because Scripture deals with it so much. Scripture deals with sin. I mean, how could it be any other way when the Bible chronicles the history and experiences of humanity and every human? Heart, every event, every experience has been tainted by one thing across the board, and that is sin. Okay, it is the one event that affects everybody. Now we might say, yes, there's one event that the coming of Christ affects everybody. Well, it affects those who believe, you know, more than those who don't, because we're all on the way to hell 
from the moment of our conception unless the Lord intervenes in our life. So that is the one event that touches all of humanity and it is centered upon the first act of disobedience. The first act. The Bible deals with truth, therefore it deals with sin. And if the Bible deals with sin, we're going to deal with sin. And any man with a moral sense, we, we, we talked about, remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Romans 1, and there is something within us that understands this, because it is built within us that their God exists. And we, when we deny that, when we suppress the truth, um, that is an outgrowth of our sinfulness. Now, the pattern of the Christian's life is to be one of confessing our sin, to be confessing our sin. First John 1 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So in a sense, it is characteristic of the believer to be confessing our sin. It is characteristic of God to be forgiving of sin. Now, when we say we confess our sin, now this is, this is something that we, we have to be careful with. It's not that we go to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Well, if you're a believer what do you know about your sin and forgiveness? It was that forgiveness of all our sins was accomplished on the cross. Okay? So the believer, in a sense, does not have an unforgiven sin. We have unconfessed sin on our heart. We have sin that we have yet to do and that we will do. And the Lord has forgiven us of that sin if we belong to him. But we, we need to confess that sin and we need to throw ourselves and seek on him and seek his mercy. Okay, 1 John chapter 2 says, He has forgiven you all your trespasses for his name's sake. For his name's sake. Now the Greek word for confession, homo legeo, homo legeo, has two things, parts of it. The word literally means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. So there are two parts in confession. That is, agreeing with God that you have sinned. Agreeing with God that you have sinned, and then turning from that sin. So inherent in confession is repentance. Because repentance is not just feeling sorry for it, but it literally means turning and going the other way from that sin. Changing after you have confessed it. Now, I, I think uh, it historically, when we look at the, at the Roman church, there is a lot of, of goodness in the confessional in its purest form, that we are reminded to confess our sin. Now, we don't have to go to somebody else to confess our sin. Unless I have wronged you, I should go to you and, and confess and seek forgiveness from you. But it is to the Lord. I mean, that's when the Reformation came along, we understand we go right to the Lord and confess our sin. We don't need an intermediary. Our intermediary is Christ who has given his life and paid the price for that sin. We can go right to the Lord and confess our sin and lay our hearts before him. You know, you might ask the question, well, Rand, gee, doesn't the Lord already know what I've done? If he's sovereign, if he's sovereign over everything, he knows what I have done. But the Lord wants us to know what? He wants us to know what we have done. In a sense, he, he raises, he wants us to raise it here in front of us so we are aware of our sin, so that we know how terrible it is, we know how much the Lord hates it, and we move away from it and receive that forgiveness and understand that forgiveness and know his mercy and grace. 
So when we come to Psalm 51, let me review the circumstances for us. Now, they're probably very uh, very well known, but just to make sure that we're on the right path, we'll, I'll do them again. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, that's where you find this narrative of the event, 2 Samuel 11, 12. We won't go there, I'm just going to summarize the events that have taken place. It's springtime. And in springtime in the Old Testament, that's when kings went off to war. But David stayed home in Jerusalem. He sent his troops off with, with his favorite general, Joab, to fight the battles. And he stayed home. Now, this wasn't that David was afraid. It wasn't because he was weak. David is the mighty warrior. He had been in the battles. He had done this on a regular basis. I think David was just growing kind of tired of it. Maybe bored with battle. I don't know. But, gee, if he was bored with battle, he's going to stay home alone in Jerusalem uh, as much as uh, alone as the king could be. And we know that, what, idle hands? The devil's workshop. Who said that? Uh, Oh, yeah, okay. We know somebody has said that, okay? So David rises late at one afternoon. Now, how many of you have ever slept into the afternoon, not as a teenager, Okay, but but late into the afternoon, well, uh, my body just can't lay down that long. But apparently David's clock had gotten off some way. Maybe he was staying up late and, and wasn't going to bed till late. And so he was getting up late in the afternoon. He gets, he rises and says, rises out of bed and goes to the porch and looks out over Jerusalem. And of course, naturally, he sees a beautiful woman whose name we know to be Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba was the wife of one of David's mighty men, Uriah. Now, David's mighty men were the group that had stuck with David for a long period of time. While, he was, while Saul was chasing him in the desert, he protected them. He had fought in the battles. This was his close circle of guys whom he could rely upon and trust. Well, David is the king in Jerusalem, and he's bored, and there's nobody around to help, you know, none of his guys are around to talk about anything or horse around, so he sees Bathsheba, and we know what happens. He calls her up into the palace, and what we euphemistically call an affair went on, and Bathsheba conceives. And immediately, instead of confessing his sin, And laying it out in the open, David begins to think how he can hide this sin. How he can cover it up as if nobody else will know. So he thinks, uh, you know, when we're trying to to hide our sin, we can be pretty devious. Okay, We can be pretty sneaky and clever about this. So how is he going to cover his tracks? Well, the only way to cover his tracks is to get Uriah back into town. That he can go see Bathsheba. So he sends a note out and... Joab sends Uriah back into town, and Uriah comes and visits David, and they have a little talk, and and says, Uriah, why don't you go home, you know, relax, be with your wife, just kick back for a little bit, and then in a week or so you can go back to the battle. And Uriah says, how can I go back to my house when the Ark of the Covenant and, and the soldiers of the Lord are out in the field fighting? I cannot go back to my own house that way. And, and David was, you know, he's like, gee, I, I picked these guys because they're loyal and they're godly. And what happens? They turn out to be loyal and godly. Okay? And they act in the godly ways. Now, David's not acting in a godly way, but Uriah is. So he says, well, okay. 
stay in the palace. Tomorrow we'll talk some more. Gets up, they have a big banquet. He uh, feeds him some wine. He feeds him some more wine and thinking that maybe his defenses will be lowered. Uriah still does not go back and see his wife. So David's kind of in a quandary. He says, what am I going to do? So he comes up with another plan, not to lay out his sin and seek forgiveness or confess it, but to cover it, to cover it. So he hands Uriah a note. Uriah, one of his mighty men, trusted, so trusted he won't go back to see his wife while the Ark of the Covenant and the soldiers are in the field. Give this to Joab when you get there. So he goes back, Uriah goes back to the battle, he gives this note to Joab, and the note says, basically, put Uriah at the front of the battle, and when it is in its worst, back away from him so that he might be killed. So Uriah carries his own death notice. David is so bent on covering his own tracks, keeping his own sin secret. Not only that he's, he's taken his friend's wife and conceived a child with her, but he sends his friend to his death so that nobody might know of his own sin. Well, that happens. And then after a while, along comes Nathan. Nathan is the most esteemed prophet in Israel at this time. And the Lord has told Nathan to go to David and tell him a story, tell him a parable. So he tells David a parable about a very rich man who had been blessed and had all kinds of animals. He had herds, he had cattle, he had sheep, he had a big house, had all of these things. And he lived next to a guy who was very poor and who had one ewe lamb. And it says he, 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 he treated that lamb as his own daughter, his own daughter. Well, somebody important comes into town and stops at the rich man's house. And the rich man says, hey, we're going to have a feast. And he says, oh, man, I don't know. I don't think I want to take one of my own out of the hundreds or thousands that I have. I know the guy that lives next to me, I'll take his lamb and we'll kill it and cook it and eat it for our feast. And that's what he did. David was, you could just imagine the, David, the injustice that David sees in this story. And his, the, you know, the vein is sticking out on his forehead. And he says, who is this man? And he's, he's got to die. And Nathan goes, you are that man. Ugh. David understood it right at that moment. That he'd been rationalizing his behavior. He'd been trying to bury his sin, ignoring what he had done to Uriah. But at Nathan's words, it all comes to a head. He can't deny it any longer. Now think of when we are confronted by sin, how the responses that you might see. Sometimes we might stonewall. This is why I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any idea about that. I, you know, that's not me. Or we might say, yes, that's me, and stoically take it because we're caught and there's no place to go. David's response is a crumbling before the Lord. His heart was, was literally broken at this moment and just fell down before the Lord, broken by sin, probably relieved that it was in the open. Probably relieved. Now, there's a very important question that we have to deal with here. What's the difference in David before Nathan's visit and after Nathan's visit. Something happens in there. Yes, Nathan came and talked to him. But something comes upon David at that moment. 
that is, that, that, that is complete change. That we have a cynical David who's trying to hide his sin, 2 Samuel 11, and we have a broken David in Psalm 51. And what comes upon him is what? Look at the title. When Nathan the prophet came to him. Prophets come with what? The word of God. Nathan came with the word of God to David and it broke him. It just confronted his sin. David is on the way to personal destruction. And David, because the word of God comes upon him and he is challenged with it, he confesses his sin and we find, we we know what happens, he is restored to the joy of salvation. Not that he had lost his salvation, but that's how he's poetically talking about it. David was only concerned about covering his crime, and now he's confessing his crime because the word of God has come upon him. The word of God bore upon his heart. And that's the one thing that stands between David in his sin and David confessing his sin. So let's look at these verse, two verses here. First two verses of Psalm 51. David has one hope, one hope alone. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. It is the Lord's loving kindness, his mercy. It is the Lord's compassion. It is not his own, it is not his own contrition that he's relying upon, but it, it is the Lord's. He basically, he's saying, Lord, don't treat me as I deserve to be treated. Treat me according to your compassion. Treat me in a way that, that I don't deserve. Do it because of your devotion to those who belong to you. A devotion that's announced when in Abraham, your God of compassion, Back in Genesis, he understands this. Now think about this, David and the prodigal son. What happens in the prodigal son's life? He comes to the conclusion and says, I've sinned against whom? God and you, Father. So he understands the order of that. Yes, he sinned against his dad. He said, Dad, I wish you were dead and I could have your your money now. And he ran off and blew it. But he says, I've sinned against God first. See, God is gracious and God is compassionate. We deserve justice for our sin because we're guilty. But we plead for mercy because God is compassionate. What would you rather have, justice or mercy? I want mercy. So our confession, true confession, involves a right view of three things. And we're only going to cover the first thing today. A right view of three things. So first, it requires a right view of sin. You have to have a right view of sin concerning confession. So here we have three parts of David's view of sin. First, sin deserves judgment. Okay? That's, that's just it. It deserves judgment. There's no way around it. That's what it deserves. That's what it deserves. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Blot out my transgressions. Now, this was a great word, blot out. Usually we think of blot out as, uh, I don't know, erase or put something over it. The dictionary says, utterly extirpate. When was the last time you used the word extirpate in a sentence? 
I used it this weekend. I was at Presbytery, a bunch of ministers. I figured they'd know what it meant. And I used it, and you, you could see it took about 10 seconds for the guy I was talking to, to for the light to come on and go, what did you say? I said, extirpate. <laughs> he, said, he said, what's that mean? I was like, oh, man. Remove or destroy. That's what it means, to remove or destroy. Blot out my transgressions. Remove my transgressions. Destroy my transgressions. David pleads for mercy, the mercy of God, even before he mentions his sin. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't come and say, I have done this. He immediately pleads for mercy in verse 1. Be gracious to me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Now we're, we're actually now we're talking about sin, but he hasn't, you know, done until verse 4. Does he get to, I've sinned against you. The fact that he pleads for mercy is an admission that he doesn't deserve to be acquitted. He was guilty. He knew he was guilty. That's why he doesn't say, Lord, I want justice. No, he doesn't want justice. He wants mercy. Because I'm guilty of this. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be exonerated from this. The same is true with, with each individual believer. We don't deserve the mercy that the Lord gives us. We've been given a guilty verdict. I mean, we're guilty of sin. It's just our nature. But what does God do? Let me read a couple passages for you. Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. I'm very glad for that. He didn't give us what we deserve. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy. That's what David appeals to. God, don't give me what I deserve. I know what I deserve. He recognizes his sin deserves judgment, and he asks that God would spare him that judgment. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If the Lord did not give us mercy, who could, who could stand in his presence? None of us could. Ezra chapter 9, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt... Seeing that thou, our God, has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Less than our iniquities deserve. And has given us such deliverance as this. Should we again go back and break the commandments? Oh, God's given me mercy. Good, I'm covered with that. Now I can go back and live like I want. No, that's not what he is saying. He's saying, God, because of all the mercy you have given us in the past, you did not punish us according to our iniquities, but you gave us less then our iniquities deserve. Should I go and sin again? No. The answer is no. Notice that the confession in each of these scriptures that sin deserves punishment. There's no getting away from it. Nehemiah talks about the revival in the land. There were two aspects of the revival in the land. One, remember, the people stood in the courtyard, and what happened? For hours on end, they read the word of God. And then what did the people do? For hours on end, they confessed their sin before the Lord. True confession is that the recognition of sin deserves punishment, but God is merciful. Remember what Job says in chapter 11? Knowing that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Now remember, we're the group that talks about our miserableness and our sin, but what do we get? We don't get what that sin deserves. So that's number one. Number two, there's no appeal 
for the Christian other than the mercy of God. Other than the mercy of God. Romans chapter 11. For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he might have mercy. So that God might be merciful. You think that's kind of strange. There's sin in the world for what reason? That God may demonstrate his mercy. Really? Ephesians 2 says God's rich in mercy. It doesn't say God gives it a little bit at a time. He says he pours it out, rains it down. He is rich in mercy upon us. And thirdly, a right view of sin demands, understands that it demands cleansing. It demands cleansing. Habakkuk chapter 1 says God is of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity. God cannot look upon sin. When he looks at us, he sees us through the finished work of Christ. Psalm 51 verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from sin. Now why does he, he's got wash and he's got cleanse. You think God not heard him the first time when he said, wash me? Now he's got to say it again, cleanse me? No, this is common. Wash me. Charles Spurgeon says this. It is not enough to blot out the sin. David says his person is defiled. He would have God himself cleanse him, for none but the Lord could do it effectually. Washing must be thorough. It must be repeated. Therefore, he cries, cleanse me. The dye is in itself immovable, and I, the sinner, have laid long in it till the crimson is ingrained in me. But, Lord, wash and wash and wash again till the last stain is gone and not a trace of my defilement is left. The hypocrite is content if his garments are washed. But the true believer says, wash me, wash me, Lord. Every kind of uncleanness, from every kind of evil, wash out of my life. Purify me, Heavenly Father. For one whose sin is left to stain on our hearts, that's each of us, the chief sinner, each of us. Only a cleansing from the Lord will do. And I want to tell you, there is nothing that any of us have done in this room that is beyond God's grace. There is nothing in our hearts, nothing, no action that we have taken that when we confess it to the Lord, he is not faithful to forgive. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, yes, we think quite a bit of our sin, quite a lot of it. Because there's a lot of sin in the world. And we know it it stems from the heart of man. It's not as if we could get rid of, of, of a structure in society or, 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 or one particular action and then sin, society would be free of sin. No, sin is within our hearts. And we're guilty of it. That's why we plead for your mercy. You are a God of compassion. And really, there's nothing that we have done in our lives that your grace is not more than sufficient to cover. That your grace cannot blot out. And when you forgive us of our sins, they are as far as the east is from the west. They are gone. 
and what comes into our lives is something this world cannot provide. It is a love and it is a grace and it is a peace and it is mercy that is undeserved but yet you are rich in it and you give it to us in that fashion. Never in little drops but you pour it down upon us. Heavenly Father, as we sing and as we prepare to come to your table, look into our hearts. Help us understand what we need to confess today, that our hearts might be right. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.